You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The gains from this general election, first female vice president of African and Indian descent, more female Republican U.S. senators, including a Korean-American. Women made political headway as we mark the 100th anniversary of the suffrage movement's win, the right to vote. Joining us this morning is HBR's Ku'uvehi Hirishi. Aloha, Catherine, and aloha, everyone. That's right. So we have uh, Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris made history as the first wahine and then first wa- uh, woman of color uh, to be elected to that second highest office in the country. And uh, so I decided to reach out to some of the community leaders uh, here, wahine leaders in Hawaii, to talk about what it means uh, for them that this you know, milestone has been reached. Vicky Ho Takamine Kumuhula for Pua Ali Ilima and executive director of the Pai Foundation had said, you know, it's about time. And she had a particular note uh, given Hawaii's own history uh, dating back to the kingdom of um, having strong female leaders in those positions. When Hawaii was colonized, it was not unusual to have a wahine leader, I Queen Lili'o Kalani, Queen Emma. We had so many Ka'ahumanu, outstanding women leaders. I would say, welcome to the hui of Manawahine. Welcome <laughs> to the hui. And I look at all of the hui and what they've left for their people, our Ali'i Trust, Bernice Pawahi Bishop, Queen Lili'o Kalani, Queen Kapi'olani, Queen Emma. Notice they're all queens, right? Mm. Queen Kapi'olani. All of them have left legacies for all of us. So that idea of what legacy uh, will come from this, uh, hitting this milestone, uh, was something that really resonated uh, with Hot Takamine. As she remembers, she was a junior in high school in 1964 when Hawaii elected uh, the first woman of color to Congress, Representative Patsy Mink. Um, And so seeing this as sort of an extension of uh, Hawaii's really trailblazing ways in, in, in getting women elected to at that federal level. Right. And, you know, we've got, uh, well, we had Pat Psyche for mm-hmm. the Republicans. Uh, we've got Maisie Hirono, uh, I think o- Okinawan descent, you know, right. she, Tulsi uh, Gabbard, Tulsi yeah. Gabbard, you know, Samoan, uh, you know, and then just the list of, of, uh, of leaders. We had Linda Lingle as our governor, right. Republican. Um, who else? Eileen Anderson, first ma- woman mayor. And we had the first two money chairs, uh, Sylvia Luke and, and Jill Takuda. Jill Takuda, yeah. yeah, powerful positions, you know. So they and, and mo- working mothers. <laughs> That's definitely uh, something to to think about. Oftentimes, when when these milestones uh, are reached, it's it's easy to fall into the mindset that oh, th- there's this big breakthrough and and uh, all the barriers uh, of women entering into uh, political office is is beginning to fall away. And uh, Lani Tevis, an associate professor for women's studies up at UH Manoa, says, you know, that's that's really not the case. We might have uh, women representing us, you know, in the in Congress or in U.S. Senate. But in actuality, there aren't a lot of women at the top levels in Hawaii. So for me, it brings up the bigger question of why aren't we seeing more women in Hawaii in those top offices? What does that tell us about the role of women, the way we view women in society at large in Hawaii? So this, you know, this election really forced people to ask these questions and have these conversations about the role of, of gender and race in politics. Um, for, for Cara Jabola Carolis, the executive director of the State Commission on the Status of Women, she was making this distinction between, um, you know, confusing identity with with the politics of it, right? So policies versus uh, experience of a particular candidate and needing to um, make sure that, uh, or ensure that perhaps representation may be one thing, uh, but... Um, whether or not policies will come out of this administration that are pro-women and feminist in nature uh, may be a little trickier. And what's going to allow more women into traditionally male spaces in the United States is having feminist representation that opens more doors and creates the conditions for women of color and specifically radical women of color who aren't accepting the way that politics is being run currently to enter into political office. And so... You know, again, identity is not everything. Political ideology and political commitments are are everything. 
And so we kind of contextualize this uh, within some of the work that the commission has been doing, right? They had uh, released the uh, Hawaii Feminist uh, COVID Economic Recovery Plan, um, which took a very... Uh, I think painted a picture of the impacts, the disproportionate impacts on women under the um, under COVID-19, and came up with some recommendations of policy changes that perhaps could be uh, made uh, to help women under COVID. Uh, whether or not those types of policies are going to be moving forward locally uh, is the question. Even though we have that uh, representation at the highest levels of government, right? You know, and we did have a, a couple of firsts here in Hawaii. Uh, we interviewed. Senator um, Thielen, oh, Laura yes. Thielen, and her mother, <laughs> Cynthia Thielen, they both stepped down uh, this year. They were the first, I think, in the country, the mother-daughter mother, daughter duo. duo. <laughs> right, and their advice was, you know, to women out there, this was at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you're a woman, step up and uh, run for office or uh, help another woman get into office. So, you know, they were doing their part as they stepped away from uh, political life. Women supporting women, I think I've, I've heard that echoed throughout these conversations that I've had uh, in, you know, uh, following this the, uh, historic election. And um, I'm really curious to see how these conversations will play out, uh, perhaps in the political arena, once the state legislature gets underway and even are at the city council level. You had mentioned uh, Honolulu here having lots of female res- representation uh, elected to office. Right, right. Uh, some fresh faces, some old faces. Uh, you know, but yeah, you, you have to, you know, thank the women that uh, that trailblazed, you know, of the Hawaiians, Kinaukamali'i, um Oh, gosh, just a, a number of, you know, I know H- Helene Hale early on at right. the legislature, uh, you know, blazing uh, the path for people. So, yeah, something to think about during this year of the centennial. Yes. Mahalo. Thank you so much. We have been hearing from HBR's Ku'uve about women in politics and the snapshot historically here in Hawaii. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. for Hawaii Public Radio comes from McDonald Rudy, a Honolulu law firm serving the community for nearly 30 years, offering a range of trusts and estates litigation services, including wills, trusts, and probate. Learn more at mcdonaldrudy.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe with the changing employment picture in Hawaii, we'll talk about a program called Hawaii Career Pathways. We'll find out how educators are preparing students for high-skill, high-paid jobs and how the private sector is preparing to receive them. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Anchor Systems Hawaii, providing foundation solutions for shifting hillside homes since 1997, including foundation repair, retaining walls, and slope stabilization. More at AnchorSystemsHawaii.com. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. On this Veterans Day, we explore the history of Punchbowl Cemetery, formerly known as the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. The site, located at the foot of the Ko'olau Mountain Range, saw many different uses before it became a burial site. Cannons sat on the rim of the crater during the reign of Kamehameha the Great and were fired to honor dignitaries or signal important occasions. The area opened up to settlement in the 1880s as leasehold lands became available. Fast forward to the 1930s when the Hawaii National Guard used the crater for artillery practice. 
During the 1940s, Congress authorized a small appropriation of $50,000 to establish a national cemetery in Honolulu. However, the funding proved insufficient and the idea was shelled. After World War II, Congress and veterans groups pushed for a permanent burial site in Hawaii, so the Army went ahead on building the Punchbowl Cemetery in 1948 and opened a year later on September 2, 1949. For today's quiz, what is Punchbowl's Hawaiian name? Call in at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. You know, for months we've been hearing about pushback over the state's plan to get out of operating Oahu's Dillingham Airfield. The U.S. Army owns the land, and the state lease ends in 2024, but the Transportation Department uh, put general aviation companies on notice that they have to vacate next summer. Senator Gil Rivier, who represents the area, has been trying to get the state to stay in the game and to uh, turn uh, over to a, a private operator to manage the airfield. The state's in uh, talks with the Army right now about the future of the facility. But one issue that we've not heard a lot about is a private water well that, according to documents HPR obtained, is leaking about 2 million gallons a month since at least December of last year. The DOT, which is supposed to maintain the system under the lease, says the water issue is complicated. Here's Senator uh, Gil Riviere arguing to keep that airfield open. I think the water issue is complicated, but and, and it must be addressed. So I, I, I understand the department's concern regarding the water and that they're not meant to be a water utility. Likewise, the Army doesn't want to be the water provider, but I, I think we can work around that, can get our heads around that and create some sort of a alternative water utility, uh, some sort of cooperative amongst the users. I, I think that would be a rational outcome. As far as the cost of uh, or the, what the department is uh, claiming as losses, I think that could be offset, and I think it, the airfield could ultimately be profitable uh, with the right vision and implementation. The long-term lease, I think, can be established, too, when we have a, when we have the right plan for it. All of that could be accomplished through the contracting with an airport management company. And there are companies around the country that have uh, expressed interest in it. So I think it's far too premature to allow the airfield to just uh, be shut down without any chance for saving the 130 jobs and 11 businesses that are operating, and others that would want to go in there if given the opportunity. Now, the DOT says that, you know, they're trying to save money. According to the, the department, they'll often say that they're losing a million dollars at Dillingham. But when you look at the, the 2019 figures, out of that million dollars, there's $362,000, which is system allocated expenses. In other words, that, that's, a, I think, a paper loss that would then be attributed to other airports um, should this one close. And if, if that assumption is correct, then the, the net loss is somewhere in the vicinity of uh, $600,000. And I think that could be met by additional uh, rents through uh, hangars. The Department of Transportation has not issued uh, any authorization to build new hangars. They're not probably realizing as much revenue from the airport as they could through a little more attentive management and oversight. And I think there's other other maybe ancillary businesses that, that could be operating out at the airfield, um, whether it's a little food concession or uh, increased fuel sales or, or uh, mechanics. There's no mechanic operation there. So many of the airplanes have to fly somewhere else to get worked on. So I think there's ways to close uh, that gap. I think that it could be quite a, quite a bit different with the proper vision. Your concern is that you've got a lot of these small businesses that would have nowhere else to go if they don't have Dillingham. That's correct. There's nowhere else to do skydiving operations uh, or gl glider rides on Oahu. And that is of great concern because this, you know, the heavy amount of tourists that frequent these businesses, are, you know, they, they, they're just not going to jump on an airplane, fly to Maui, drive all the way to Hana, and then, and then do a skydiving trip there when they would have just, you know, it's just not going to happen as far as meeting that demand. The businesses, expecting a business who's a uh, been operating out at Dillingham for years and years and years to, to pick up and move to Kauai or Maui or Hawaii Island out in the 
remote areas where there's that much less um, tourist activity. It's just, it's just unreasonable. And that's the department's plan. They said they can relocate somewhere else, anywhere but here. And that's just, that's just not right. The department is in discussions with the Army as to what are the requirements for ending the lease. Now, according to the lease terms, and as is generally done, you need to return the property to its original condition. Well, in the 80s, the department built uh, hangars for the gliders and airplanes. They built a Unicom tower, they, which is like air traffic controller, kind of. And so they, they built some infrastructure that they would probably have to knock down, and that's going to cost money. And so for the state to say, oh, there's no cost to leaving, I, I just don't think that's uh, an appropriate way of looking uh, at the situation. They will have to spend additional money to close the airfield. And if they close the airfield, it's not coming back. So my, my great uh, wish and request is that the, the DOT allow enough time to bring in additional management company who can uh, assume the responsibilities and take over you know, the management of the facilities. Do they have to go through an RFP? Well, that's, that's the details that would have to be squared away. One of the conditions is, one of the concerns is the Army wants to work with a government agency. Uh, the, uh, the government does not want to work with an independent business. So we do, in one way or another, need to keep a nexus with the state. So it could be the Department of Business and Economic Development. It could be Department of Transportation. It could be the city and county, theoretically. And then um, through them, then they could uh, hire a contract management company. Or maybe we could create a uh, some sort of small uh, a specific airport authority within the state to, to manage, you know, the, the contracts and such. So that's, that's in the details in the implementation um, that needs to happen. Here's the thing. If the state is going to spend millions of dollars to knock down buildings and restore the water system in order to leave, why wouldn't we want to have an alternative that, you know, solves all of those problems and allows the business and economic activity to continue out? Why spend the money to shut it down when you could spend probably less money keep it going and actually turn it into a viable alternate, you know, a viable operation. You say that you've been in contact with interested parties that would maybe consider stepping in, but you can't really say at this point who they are? There's three mainland and international businesses that are presently managing and operating airfields around the world, and they have all expressed an interest, and they're in the process of writing letters to the governor and to the Department of Transportation expressing their interest in the opportunity to manage the airfield. Um, so because of the, the circumstance, because it's still early um, and they're coming in now, I, I don't really want to identify them at this point, but they are coming. They, they are interested. We're um, preparing variations of, of the documents right now, um, of potential bills to maybe create a small specific authority for that or maybe to transfer it um, you know, from one department within the state to another. Um, so we, we are kind of uh, preparing alternative legislation should any of them be appropriate for what needs to happen. The reports that I've seen on the Dillingham Airfield water system, you know, it's a private well, but it looks like there's just a lot of water loss. There's a lot of water loss. It's losing millions of gallons every month, and it, it needs to be fixed. That's, that's one of the conditions. The Army uh, granted the lease subject to the state managing the water system. And now with this massive leak, I, I can't imagine that the Army is going to let the state walk away without fixing it. So, I, I, you know, one of the unique qualities of this is that the state Department of Transportation manages the, or, you know, <laughs> to some extent manages the water delivery system, but they collect no revenue from it. So the city and county's beach park at Mokulea uses free water for the showers, and Camp Erdman uses free water, you know, for their activities. And the the uh, satellite tracking station up at Ka'ena Point, they're using the water for free. Everybody's using the water for free. Uh, and I, I think that now private residences, I think now comes a time when we do these repairs where we maybe set up a you know, fee structure to, to manage it going forward. It's just stunning when you think there's 2 million gallons a month that it's losing, and, you know, and how long has it been losing this? Yes, for some time. Now, it's, on, it's coming off the military reservation, so the public utilities does not have any direct authority um, over that water system, although the Commission on Water Resource Management has an eye on it and ultimately you know, a responsibility to manage our water resources. Uh, the Honolulu Board of Water Supply is not involved in this in any way. Um, you know, they're, they're not in the vicinity. They're several miles down the road where the Board of Water Supply ends its responsibility. But if we're concerned about a 
precious resource, water loss of 2 million gallons a month is not it's, good. It's, it's wrong. It's a, it absolutely needs to be corrected as soon as we can. Do you know how long that these losses have been ongoing? I'm not sure when they began or when they reached this, this level of, uh, of usage. I, I don't know. Is there a, a, a juncture, uh, some other peg that's coming, a, a meeting or something coming up around the corner? Well, I'm, st- I'm waiting for updates, you know, from both the Army and the uh, Department of Transportation to the extent that they can share what is the status uh, of the work that's going to be required for the, for the early termination. Um, I, I don't understand the rush to get out um, by June 30th of this year, of uh, this coming year. The lease is still in effect until July of 2024. So I would encourage the Department of Transportation to uh, consider continuing you know, with the existing lease, not terminating early, and using this time to transition to a new management authority. That would be, I think, the way to go. I think it would save over you know, up to 130 jobs and 11 businesses that are there now, and the future jobs and employment that uh, will come with a, with a, a better vision for the, for the airport. In the Defense Appropriations Act of 1991, 87 acres of Kauai Hapai, the, the, the beach there and the control tower and the uh, hangars and the glider port, basically, that part of the airfield was all basically deeded back to the state, subject to doing whatever was required to complete the transfer. And the transfer never occurred. So we're, doing, uh, we're trying to do our due diligence and figure out why, why the transfer never occurred. And then the question remains, well, why not complete the land transfer now? Why would we want to leave lands with the federal government when they have offered to, to give it back? Now, if we get that land back, then it's an interesting opportunity for state-owned land to manage the airfield. Then we're not worried as much about getting permission from the, federal, um, from the Army you know, to build something. It provides more flexibility. Then you would have a traditional joint-use airstrip operation. I think we have more opportunity if we could complete the land transfer, but that's a separate question to separate but related. Also the name of the airfield, Kauai Hapai Airfield. There was a bill passed to change the name to Kauai Hapai Airfield upon transfer of the land. So if you look in the Hawaii Revised Statutes, it says the airfield shall be called Kauai Hapai Airfield, but the land never transferred. So there's all kinds of loose loose ends here. That was Senator Gil Rivera, who represents Oahu's North Shore and who is working to find a way to keep the Dillingham Field open for general aviation business. The airstrip came under scrutiny following a fatal crash of a skydiving plane that killed 11 people last year. And the State Water Commission, which is charged with regulating this precious resource, says it's looking into the reports of the massive water leaks and has reached out to the DOT and the Army. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. Next time on The World, the Iran nuclear deal. It was a signature accomplishment of the Obama White House. Undoing it was a top goal for Donald Trump. Now it's Joe Biden's turn to find a way to rein in Iran and its nuclear ambitions. Chief U.S. negotiator Ambassador Wendy Sherman forged the original deal. She tells us what options Biden has now. Next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Legalizing recreational marijuana. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Kevin Dayton on the line today. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, so this is like uh, like the gambling bills. You know, somebody always tries to introduce something every year. That's just about right. Um, it's getting more interesting, though, and, and maybe a little bit more pressing because we're to the point now where 15 other states have approved uh, recreational marijuana for adult use, uh, and that's not including, of course, the District of Columbia. And, you know, one might wonder whether pressure is beginning to build at the state legislature, because that's also been talked about as, as an issue here for many years. And we have made uh, headway in some areas. I mean, you know, we have the, that, uh, the hemp program. Uh, we've got medical marijuana. But the recreational one just seems to be mm, not quite. 
It does, and and you wonder the the states that approved it on uh, November third were uh, Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota, um, and there have been uh, the, you mentioned a decriminalization move that was uh, House Bill thirteen eighty three in twenty nineteen, but even that uh, decriminalization of small amounts of marijuana uh, turned out to be pretty controversial. Actually, there were sixteen votes against the bill in the House, so clearly there's some concern there, continuing concern there. And David Ige opposed the bill, um, not enough to veto it, but he did allow it to become. He, he chose to allow it to become law without his signature. And, and there was a, another first, right? I mean, there was legislation that, for the first time, passed out of the Judiciary Committee. That's correct. Uh, Carl Rhodes, in, uh, that's Judiciary Chairman Carl Rhodes, Senator Rhodes, uh, pushed a bill out. I don't know if pushing it is the right way because it was unanimously approved, I believe. But basically heard a bill to uh, legalize um, marijuana for adult use, adult consumption, and he believes that it's the first time that uh, such a bill was ever approved by a committee in the legislature. There have been bills that have been heard before, but in 2019 it was actually approved. But then it did not get any further hearings, and so it died that session. And we often hear the advocates say, oh, you know, we could bring so much more money into our state coffers, you know, if we legalized this and taxed it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, there's a sense that a lot of people are going to be looking at this this year because the state's in such um, a dire financial situation right now. But um, people such as uh, House Finance Chairwoman Sylvia Luke point out that it'll take a while for any sort of uh, legalized marijuana tax to take effect. And there's a tax foundation study out that says that if you assume that Hawaii is going to structure the tax in pretty much the way Colorado did, and Colorado's found it to be very lucrative, that Hawaii would bring in something on the order of $31 million a year. That's not a huge sum of money when you consider um, the, the size of the state budget and the amount that the state is going to need to get through these, these next couple of years. But um, it, it, it's better than nothing, I suppose. So if you were a betting man, what do you think the chances are of getting something in this next session? Ooh, I don't like to bet, but it looks like a very tough road. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of things. For one thing, you can look at David Ige's, uh, Governor Ige's opposition and say, geez, do we really want to um, offend a lot of people and raise a lot of concerns when it's very likely that the governor himself would veto any bill if it made it to him? And in addition to that, there's some key committee chairpersons who really have got reservations about it. Um, in the House, uh, Ryan Yamane, um, who will be a, a critical chairperson uh, this coming year, um, he voted against the, the decriminalization bill, so clearly he's got some concerns. Well, I must say, you know, I traveled to Seattle not too long ago, and, and uh, it is kind of interesting when you're standing at the street corner, you know, uh, getting ready to go into the crosswalk, and you're smelling marijuana everywhere. <laughs> it's very strange. Yes, my experience was in Las Vegas, and it was the same thing. It's just this odd experience of they're walking around like it's legal, and I guess that's because it is, huh? <laughs> yeah, and I guess you got to keep track of where it is and where it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Okay, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Enrollment at both public and private schools is said to be down by 3%, but one small Catholic school on Maui is bucking that trend and is reaching out to families who may be interested in getting back into the classroom if they're not happy with their children's progress with distance learning at their current school. You know, last week, St. Anthony's announced it is offering discounted tuition. There would be no charge for the second quarter with a commitment that students will enroll for the second semester. Head of school Tom Collins explains what's, what led up to that decision. We did some initiatives this summer. We ran two summer programs for uh, a regular summer program, day program for kindergarten through fifth grade students. We've done that every year. And we want to bring students on campus, so we set in protocols and thermal scanners. We wanted to get students back here and, and teach ourselves, right, how to do that effectively and consistently. And then we ran a tutoring program also and that was kindergarten through eighth grade students. They were socially distanced in one of our larger rooms. 
Same thing in their thermal scan. So that gave us confidence to me that we could open up on August 4th as a K-12 school and, and put things in place. So all the signage, the training for the staff, communicating with the parents, teaching the students those protocols during the first week or so was really important. The, I guess the good news of COVID-19 is that they've been wearing masks and following those guidelines since last March. So not having this being unique to us, the students did really well with that. And our parents have been outstanding uh, wearing the masks on campus, our drop-off, our pickup time. So all that rolled together. We reached and went past our target enrollment number because we thought there might be a reduction uh, with parents wanting to keep their children home. We thought there might be a reduction in parents financially and being able to get back to work. And what we found is that they did come and some new families came in, too, that had us on the radar, but they really were looking for something for their, their children, especially in the primary grades. So our kindergarten through fifth grade numbers are very good. We have a couple of slots open yet. We picked up some students in middle school and a couple at high school. Uh, the high school and middle school area is why we want to reach out. We've got room. We've got room at the end, and we keep hearing more and more from parents and, and, and our parents who know people from work or neighbors and this kind of this groundswell of they're very frustrated. Their children are still doing virtual learning at home. There's still uncertainty of when their children will come back, and if they come back, will be two days a week. So it hurts us. Obviously, we want to increase our enrollment, but it hurts us to know the community is hurting. And as one of the few schools that are open and we're a K-12 school, we're really pushing this out to, to say we have room. We've had to do waiting lists at the grade school. We're not going to go over our numbers for safety within classrooms so uh, it's kind of helping us and helping the community and, and those parents that are really struggling for looking for something for their children there's more that are looking at going back to work or taking on a second job and having someone watching their child is a struggle and that dilemma of if they're at home alone they're doing virtual learning and i'm not going to be here that's another burden so it really is for us to help solidify our numbers but but just as much to be out there for the community that may not know we're open or may not think that St. Anthony School is a great place for their son or daughter. And you just recently announced that you would offer that free second quarter, right? We just wrote that out there because we, just like everyone else, we're waiting to see what's going on. And so it seems as if many of the schools, most of the schools, won't be having the children come back in maybe January. And even then, it's kind of tenuous of how that's going to look. The MIL and the Hawaii Athletic Association still struggling with looking at when athletics will come back and what that will look like. So we made a decision to push this out there. We're in the middle of second quarter, but especially for secondary level, uh, those students kind of knowing their schedule and knowing um, the courses they need to take to graduate and put themselves in a position for the workforce or for college afterwards. Uh, second quarter is usually kind of the make or break of making a decision, especially if they're looking at transferring to a different high school. So we wanted to push that out there and say, don't worry about that. You know, don't let that get in the way of you checking us out and, and, and coming here. So the struggle of waiting for the next time puts everything back. So we're trying to reach out to parents and say, you know, we're it's really prorating tuition. Uh, we're not going to charge you for any tuition for second quarter. Um, but then you'd have to make an agreement with us for the remainder of the year. Obviously, we don't want to be here and have parents come for a few weeks and then pull their kids out because we're, we're not at daycare in that way, and especially at the middle school, high school level. We really want to build a relationship and mark a plan together with them for, for the course for their children of how they're going to finish their high school years so that they're, they're ready to move on to the next level. So. We just thought it was a nice incentive to get people's attention and uh, tap into some of that. I've received four emails so far from parents uh, saying that they, they read the article or someone shared that with them and they wanted more information. So, And it's a wide range. Um, I won't mention schools that their children currently attend, but uh, it's, it's a wide range, and I think it's tapping into that need that we're hearing about. Where do you have openings? What grade levels? So we only have a few at the, at the grade school level, um, and we've got people pursuing that now. At the middle school level, in 6, 7, 8, we have a total of 19 openings that would uh, 
that we could serve and still meet our requirements for social distancing. And at the high school level, we have room for about 34 students. Our senior class has been together for several years. We're not dismissing someone if they're a senior, but parents that are interested in having their senior finish here would really need to contact us soon uh, just because of the connection that that class has uh, and the rest of that. So 9th, 10th, and 11th, uh, we could accept around 34 additional students and still be good as far as our again, class sizes, social distancing, and the individual attention that we offer. If folks are interested, what's the tuition range? So for 6th, 7th, and 8th, there's a different level for each grade level. So say, you know, say on average around $11,000, and then for the high school, uh, 14800 Divide that in half. These are just rough numbers because we'd be looking at half of the year. There's a registration fee and some specific fees to specific classes. Uh, so that would be the amount of commitment to finish the second semester with us. But if parents are interested, they can again, go to our website. They can send me an email, uh, call our uh, main office number. Uh, we'll give them all the information they, they want and need, and then they'd sit down and talk to, again, my business manager. We do have some tuition assistance available. Obviously, we allocated a lot of that in the spring and first part of the year, but that would be based on them sending information to a, an objective third-party group that looks that over and then recommends to us what amount a family may be eligible. Give us a quick thumbnail. How long has St. Anthony's been around and what's the enrollment? St. Anthony's School has been around for over 160-plus years. The parish in the school has been around a long time. This is our fourth year, though, as a K-12 through school. Before I came here, the parish ran the grade school, and then the Diocese of Honolulu ran the secondary, junior high, middle through high school. Our total enrollment now is, is 280. We're small and mighty. That's allowed us to have a lot of flexibility and for our students to participate in all kinds of clubs and intramural programs that we started and the rest of that. So our grade school classes, each grade level, we really would only have up to about 40 students at each grade level. And then our middle school and high school classes right now, again, middle school looking at 20 to 25 students per grade. And then the high school is the area where it's been choppy over the past years where the numbers have been lower. So if a student comes here, they're going to be involved right away. They're going to be welcomed and connected right away. Our goal is ultimately to get to a point that kindergarten through 12th grade uh, that we'd be averaging around 40 students per grade level. So we have no intention to be bigger than that. And our students participate in sports and arts and clubs and, and all the rest of that and are pretty successful when they do that. That was Tim Cullen, head of school for St. Anthony's in Maui, what he calls small and mighty. Uh, the school is offering free tuition for this second quarter for students if they commit to finish out the school year with St. Anthony's. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to UH Manoa Kennedy Theater, Pueo Gallery, and Hastings and Pleadwell. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. UH Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a federally endangered Hawaiian seabird. <laughs> The Oahu, or Hawaiian petrel, is a seabird that spends its entire life at sea, only coming to land in the Hawaiian Islands to breed. Like many Hawaiian birds, Oahu are named after the sound they make. Their haunting calls can be heard at night as they fly mauka to their nests high in the mountains. (laughs) 
Oahu navigate using the stars, and baby Oahu leaving the nest for the first time get confused by artificial lights and can become grounded. This makes them easy prey for dogs and cats. When Oahu were more abundant around the islands, they were considered a great delicacy, but nowadays they're listed as an endangered species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at UH Hilo. Earlier in the show, we asked you to tell us the Hawaiian name for Punch Bowl, the crater, which is home to the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, the only national cemetery in the state. In the early 1940s, Congress authorized a small appropriation of $50,000 to establish a national cemetery in Honolulu. Local officials proposed Punch Bowl, but the project was put on hold as the funding proved insufficient. After World War II, Congress and veterans group, uh, groups were pushing for a permanent burial site in Hawaii for the remains of thousands of World War II servicemen on the island of Guam awaiting permanent burial. So the Army dusted off the punch bowl plan and construction began in 1948. A year later, the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific was dedicated on September 2nd, 1949. Since then, approximately 53,000 veterans and their dependents have been interred at Pu'uovaina, which translates to Hill of Sacrifice. And we had lots of residents of that area call in, but Fred Bannon, who's lived in that area for 42 years, he had the fastest fingers. Congratulations. That's today's quiz. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, something caught our ear today on Morning Edition, and we thought you might want to hear it, too. We usually don't play NPR stories on this program, but this is an exception. A new memorial opened this morning on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., the Native American Veterans Memorial. And as you'll hear from NPR's Quill Lawrence, it's a story that includes a tribute to Native Hawaiians who have served. The memorial is simple, a steel circle elevated over a carved stone drum. It sits in the shade of the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. Kevin Gover is a member of the Pawnee Nation and the museum's director. It's an article of faith in Indian country that Native Americans serve at a greater rate than basically any other group. So we wish for this to be a sacred place, not just for Native America, but for all Americans. The opening ceremony went virtual because of the pandemic, but here are a few of the people Gover hopes will one day attend and sanctify the site. Okay. My name is Marcella Ryan LeBeau, and I'm from the Two Kettle Band of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Do you know I'm 101 years old now? In 1944, Marcella LeBeau was a surgical nurse at an army hospital during the Battle of the Bulge. Well... In December, I believe it was the 16th of December, the Germans overtook the American soldiers. They wondered about putting a hospital so close to the front lines, but they did. So we were there in Liège, and we had buzz bombs night and day at the time of the breakthrough, the Battle of the Bulge. LeBeau says her own community always honored her military service. Now, the memorial in Washington means the whole country can do the same. To me, I, I felt like it was a great honor. My ancestors were warriors. I'm related to Rain in the Face, who fought in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, or Greasy Grass, as they called it. My father was a Spanish-American War veteran. My brother, oldest brother was a veteran, all down the line. But some Native vets aren't as aware of their own family's service. Yeah, my name is Colonel Wayne Don. Don has served 27 years in the Army, including Bosnia and Afghanistan. 
you know, for a lot of years, I thought I was a first-generation military person. I came to find out is both of my grandfathers and uncles had served in the Territorial Guard during World War II. That was an emotional discovery for Don, and a complicated one. Not just Native Americans, but some of the other minority groups. Um, ultimately, that they chose to serve to represent their people and also to serve a country that you know, sometimes didn't have uh, what appeared to be their best interests in mind, but they still, they still did it. He says now that the country is wrestling with questions about racial justice, he hopes the memorial can play a part. Army vet Alan Ho feels the same. His native Hawaiian saw combat in Vietnam. Then his two sons served after 9-11. His oldest son, Nainoa Ho, was killed in Iraq. And he was um, an incredible young man. He uh, was an officer, platoon leader, and he was killed in 2005 in uh, Mosul, Iraq. His, his younger brother's the staff sergeant. His name is Nakoa. Uh, and the meaning for Nakoa is a warrior who is brave and courageous. Those are the stories of service and sacrifice he wants Americans to hear at the new memorial. For Native visitors, Ho wants it to be a validation and an inspiration. And then perhaps, who knows, maybe some young Native son who experiences that memorial for the first time will be, you know, in 50 years from now, he'll be the, the president of the United States. Who knows? Quill Lawrence, NPR News. And that memorial was created thanks to legislation introduced by Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz. It was signed into law by President Obama in 2013. This morning, Senator Schatz said that with the memorial's opening, people from across the country can pay tribute to our Native veterans and learn about the contributions that they have made on the battlefield and here at home. You know, as we commemorate Veterans Day in the midst of a pandemic, many ceremonies have been moved online or have been limited to under five people. That was the case at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific at Punchbowl. Public Affairs Specialist Jean Maestas says that even though traditional ceremonies won't be held, there are still ways to honor both our fallen service members and the veterans in our communities. He spoke with the Conversations producer Harrison Patino about a private wreath-laying ceremony conducted yesterday and the changes made this year. The staff at Punch Bowl had the privilege to conduct a wreath lane ceremony, and we did this to uh, honor all those veterans who served. And the reason why we did this is because we're not going to be able to conduct a Veterans Day ceremony uh, on Veterans Day just because of all the social, social distancing issues that are occurring right now due to uh, COVID-19. So how has the pandemic changed the nature of observing Veterans Day? Well, it's changed things quite a bit here. As you know, for the last eight months, we have been uh, limiting the number of guests and family members that can attend an internment to 10. Also, that we're uh, asking those who are visiting grave sites to come in groups of five or less, and uh, we want them to make sure that they're all wearing uh, face masks. And we're also asking that if they're not from the same household to... Uh, abide by the social distancing guidelines. Now, earlier this year, we observed Memorial Day during the pandemic, and in many ways, that's a similar holiday. In terms of marking the occasion, commemorating veterans, were there any lessons learned that you picked up from Memorial Day to apply to Veterans Day this year? Well, Memorial Day this year, uh, once again, we weren't uh, able to conduct the major uh, ceremony that we typically conduct out here at Punch Bowl. So we did conduct a very small uh, 10-person wreath lane ceremony just with the staff here at Punch Bowl. Now, would you say that the observance of Veterans Day is particularly resonant during such a tumultuous year as 2020? Well, it's always very important that we recognize our veterans, um, and it is uh, resonant in the fact that, you know, the veterans are having a hard time um, making their way out to Punch Bowl due to COVID-19. Uh, some of them are, are elderly, and uh, the reason why we're adhering to all these uh, uh, guidelines is because we don't want those individuals uh, to get sick in attending, you know, these very large ceremonies that typically we have here at Punch Bowl. Now, how has the pandemic complicated or maybe just changed efforts to correspond with the families of interred veterans? Right now, we're doing everything online and via the telephone. Uh, so family members typically would come out here and meet face-to-face -face with our staff in the family room. 
but now we're doing everything virtually. Now, obviously, as you said, large gatherings are canceled for the foreseeable future. So how have ceremonies been changed or augmented during these times? I know you said ceremonies have been limited to 10 people. There's online proceedings. Is there anything else that's going on? Well, unfortunately, a majority of the ceremonies have all been canceled. Um, So we're not holding any public ceremonies at all. So all the ceremonies that were, you know, or all the, you know, observances that we're conducting here at Punchbowl are done with the Punchbowl staff only. Now, Veterans Day, it's a time to commemorate fallen veterans, but it's also a time to thank and examine the situations of living veterans. Now, with the number of issues facing veterans in America, what can be done during such a hectic year to make sure that they're not forgotten? Well, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, We have launched the Legacy Memorial Program, and one of the things that uh, we encourage people to do is go on to our website, which is www.va.gov backslash remember, and you can post a remembrance or a commemoration to your favorite veteran, and it will be seen throughout the world, anybody who visits this website. So it's the Veterans Legacy Memorial. By and large, I think uh, Americans are very well aware of uh, why they have the freedoms that they have, and that's because of our veterans. And uh, it's always been my experience as a veteran that you know, I run across people that uh, are always thanking veterans and myself as well for the efforts that uh, we put forth in, in ensuring those freedoms for, for all Americans. And uh, a lot of what the veteran service organizations are doing here in Oahu is that they're reaching out to veterans and making sure that, uh, you know, they have all the resources and all the information they need. Um, one thing that's occurring today is the Chief Warrant Officers Association from the United States Coast Guard chapter here in Hawaii, uh, they're out in the cemetery as we speak, placing flags on the uh, the graves of fallen veterans. And they're doing this in very small groups of five or less. So this is one way that uh, the smaller groups can still continue to commemorate veterans. Now, without going too much into the subject of mental health, I just know that it's kind of become an awakening in the year of 2020, how people are acknowledging the role of mental health what it plays and how it's been compounded during a pandemic. I would imagine that's even more so the case for veterans. Well, I'm not a mental health expert, and I don't have any experience in that realm, but I do know that the Veterans Administration is doing everything that they can to reach out to veterans in these trying times and make sure that they at least have someone they can speak to. There's a veterans crisis line. There's a veterans health line. And um, I know those things are readily available to our veterans. That was Gene Mestis, Public Affairs Specialist for the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific. He was talking with the Conversations producer, Harrison Patino, about the changes on this Veterans Day during COVID times. We have to go, but up tomorrow, we continue our post-election coverage. We plan to hear from Big Iron Mayor-elect Mitch Roth. Leave your feedback for us on our talkback line. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow.